My guest on today's episode is neuroscientist Magdalena Backmeyer. As well as neuroscience, Magdalena is the founder of Make Time Count. She is an integration pioneer, a grid inventor, a multiple time author, and top performance coach. Magdalena's books, Get Productive and Get Productive Grid, have been translated into Arabic and Chinese. Magdalena is also the creator of The Grid, a productivity methodology that supports achievement of great results and well-being. Magdalena says that she connects people to the bigger picture of life by teaching minds to feel and hearts to think. Magdalena believes there's a way of being that's all head and little heart. Being this way can produce short-term results, but sustaining them can be a struggle. In fact, overlooking human need for connection harms relationships, hampers success and crushes life. It makes people spend time doing things they don't care about with people they don't like. But Magdalena believes there is another way. The alternative involves learning wisdom, compassion, love and curiosity. I'm very pleased today to welcome Magdalena Backmeyer. Hi Magda, how are you? Very well. Am I allowed to shorten your name? Sorry, I should have asked that before. Yes, 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 it's no problem. <laughs> I, yes, don't, I don't know why I did shorten that, actually. We don't know each other that well. But, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's great. No, it's lovely. Okay, perfect. So um, I'll get straight into some of the, the notes I've made about our conversation today. And, um, you know, when I saw you speak at the uh, Minds at Work event um, a few months ago, um, I was fascinated by quite a lot of things that you said. I've since watched your TED talk and a few of the other videos online um, about a few of the things that you've been talking about. Um, one thing that really stuck in my head was you talk about the heart and the mind being two critical partners that guide individuals and the collective towards full realization. And I just, for the benefit of our listeners, can you just kind of add a little bit more to that and kind of what do you mean by that? Uh, yes. So imagine, uh, you know, from sort of Abraham Manslow to Carl Rogers to code Goldstein's like we have talked about psychologists, educators, philosophers have always talked about our goal in life to self-actualize, to fulfill our potential, fill our talents, um, and bring them to service, you know, service probably I would say first in the agency of ourselves. And then as we develop and mature in the agency of others. Um, with increasing levels of responsibility. And so where I have seen people not be able to do that is where there is what I call heart and mind conflict, which is an internal conflict between what we think we should do um, or what our logic sometimes tells us to do or ego um, and what we know or feel is right. Um, and so that's about sort of a, a larger sense of not just emotional wisdom, but also a degree of resonance and alignment between our true values and not just sort of norming or wanting to be liked or wanting to fit in or any sort of external pressure. So, you know, from, from the work I do, I would say that every person is on a journey of aligning inside. So finding a way to reconcile 
and and put together heart and mind into better harmony so they feel good within and there's less internal conflict and that happens for everyone but then i would also think that you know collectively when i watch whether it's the local club or you know a company or a startup or a professional um, organization or body of some type or really larger companies or even neighborhoods and, and countries collectively we also together are always aligning we're aligning our thinking so if you think about you know climate change or any of these larger global challenges the, the reason why often things don't happen is because we all have not agreed we've not aligned yet we are not all convinced um and so there are these kinds of different movements um and that's what i was meaning by those two things interesting so um can you give, give me an example of where you've seen that conflict um, arise in people's in, in the workplace? Particularly, is, is it, would a conflict be somebody kind of if climate change is a good example, somebody who was an advocate for climate change and kind of really passionate about it, working for an organisation that was not doing all the things they should be doing? That would be quite quite a good example, um, you know. But but there are all sorts of conflicts, which I think uh, you and I have spoke probably offline on a couple of times about, um, you know, within systems and institutions and even families, there are certain beliefs and um, orientations. And there are many times where as an individual, we might not be in line with them. Like we might just think, well, actually, this is not a good, this is not a good policy but there is a policy. And so we might follow a policy, but ultimately we might not really be in alignment with that policy. So that would create an internal conflict. So a perfect example, I think, um, of that can be the way, you know, a manager in the workplace might want to relate with a staff member um, around anything where, you know, the kind of default might be, oh, it's better to go via HR. Um, but you might know inside that it's a human issue and actually a far better, wiser, faster, more effective solution would be to just talk to someone heart to heart, mind to mind and, and solve the problem. Uh, so sometimes, uh, the conflict might not only start, but also be escalated by processes and systems that then, um, take over and actually create even bigger conflicts. Interesting. So, so the workplace is probably a really good. Uh, we talk about those systems. The workplace is probably a system where you see lots of conflict very regularly. Um, yes. People disagreeing with the way that policies and processes are run. Your HR policy is probably a great one. I think the example you've just said probably really taps into this kind of human side of work that we're all talking about and becoming a bit obsessed with now. The idea that you could follow a process and go into that process, or you could just have a human-to-human conversation with the individual about how you can make things better. Yes, I mean, I, I have seen that be exacerbated by all sorts of technology and systems whose, you know, aspiration and also goal is to speed things up and make things more systematic and maybe more fair. Um, but sometimes it's like throwing the baby with the bathwater, you know, it's just sort of applying one thing, but actually... Sometimes the dehumanization of, of certain things takes the heart out of the human. 
and and that does have a, a problem because you know you have lots of you know, if I follow headlines of newspapers, you have lots of teachers who go, well, I, you know, what brought me into teaching was passion for developing youngsters, but I'm squeezed by a system where I cannot teach. <laughs> you know, you have doctors who, you know, go in through such grueling medical training in order to be of assistance to patients. And then they say, I can't do my best medicine for the patient because of the system. So, so there are in many different I think jobs um, constraints that uh, I don't think are often necessary, but they just come from perhaps bad design, a design that is very heavy on the system side, but far less um, accommodating for really understanding the human. You know, if I if I could quickly make an analogy, it's sort of like when I remember learning, you know, original PCs and you had to code everything and you got the little cursor with a C and, you know, enter where you're going to go. It, it was very anti the way humans work, uh, but it was the best we could have. Hmm. And then, you know, now we have touch screens and intuitive sliding and the sorts of things that, you know, babies get automatically. And um, so I think sometimes it's just a reflection that technology and innovation has not still kept up with what our true needs are. But I think it also means having the courage to really um, own up to them ourselves first and not to show up to places and think it's okay that uh, we can do it less. And that conflict must have an impact on an individual's well-being. You know, in the example you've given, you know, you look at the NHS and you might have young doctors who got into what is a vocation to do good in the world and uh, save lives and make people better and are probably being dragged down with unnecessary as they would see it, unnecessary paperwork and administration and that job isn't really what they expect it to be and that conflict's mm. obviously going to have an impact on their well-being because they're not being fulfilled in the way they want to or expected to be at the end of the day absolutely you know i i think that uh, i uh, from from my one-to-one -one work with people, what I often see is that, uh, you know, if over a prolonged period of time, you are having to fight yourself, you're having to split inside into parts, you are lower on energy and you're burning energy by having to endure those inner battles. So there is far less resource. And if you, you know, interview people who are, um, in deep in a conflict over dilemmas or, um, you know, when they're really struggling, for example, in these sort of difficult situations where they want to do one thing, but they feel they can't, um, they over time tire. Mm -hmm. So if nothing else, they physically have far less resources because instead of everything being aligned and working like a team towards one goal, everything inside is pulling in a different direction. And that does have a physiological, um, you know, a reductionistic effect on the energy of the body that we have and how, how well we can even sleep. Because when you have conflict, it's harder to sleep. So we don't rest well either. Interesting. So um, when I've seen you talk before, you've spoken about the idea that talent isn't in short supply, but that the whole connected people are. Um, uh -huh. and that people aren't as well or don't flourish at work as they should. 
Um, and you, this requires individuals to be at peace and free from the internal conflict we've been talking about. So, you know, how do we help others to be at peace so that they avoid burnout and they avoid their well-being being poor and they avoid disengagement at work? Um, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of transforming the world by transforming yourself. So, you know, my philosophy is never to sort of say, oh, you know, let's encourage others to do X, Y, or Z. I think if we take responsibility, personal responsibility for how we show up, we end up helping to transform and heal others also towards better. Um, you know, so if if I am constantly split about and I don't know why I like, you know, John, but I don't like Mary as a manager. I have some inner work to do because I detect that I have a conflict. It's not their issue. It's my issue. But if I don't do that work, then ultimately nothing can get better. You see? So it's not so much. So, you know, we can create all sorts of assertiveness programs and good management techniques and everything kind of on the surface that, you know, that is good and has its place. But I think we always come back to the really core basics of real personal development that that has kind of fallen out of maybe trend. Um, but ultimately, it's about self-awareness, self-knowledge, and effective self-practices. Because right. when we're okay, you know, we show up to things from far better center and and in fact you know i was um talking to someone this morning um exactly about this you know if i am if i'm hijacked in my mind 100 percent and with worry or anxiety or having too much on you know and then i also you know emotionally feel oh i'm having a bit of a tiff with my partner and then physically i'm going i have too much on and i'm so tired and i wish i had an extra day of a weekend and then the last time I thought about, you know, where I am with myself was God knows when, because I hardly had time. Then, then what I'm showing to with every relationship is far less of a resourceful state because actually I'm, I'm fighting my own battles. I'm, I'm not full, fully online. Interesting. It's, it's really interesting that you talk about kind of the individual having to own that conflict. Um, when we in one of the podcast episodes we speak to a friend of mine Natasha Wallace and she talks about how you know in any workplace well-being context the individual has to own that you know well-being begins with the self um yes. and that it's, it's our responsibility to kind of look after our own well-being and all this external stuff doesn't matter if we don't want to change or we're not going to address what we need to do to change ourselves so it's quite interesting you, you say largely the same yeah. thing I think you know sometimes I, I be, being doing doing the sort of work I do and being curious I you know whenever I am a witness to a difficult customer interaction you know whether I'm you know at the airport and someone's complaining or uh, you know in a hotel somewhere and someone's complaining or any different scenarios um, it's always very interesting to watch how. Um, problems are faced and responded to by a person who can stay calm under pressure and really collected. 
And if you are to watch it, you watch their body language, you watch what they say, you watch their emotional responses, they are able to put the other person at ease. They're able to reassure and they're able to find a wise solution. You hardly ever see this from a place where someone is rushed, emotionally hijacked and tired because any of those states push you away from a resourceful center. So your ability to respond is weaker, you know, by definition. Um, so yeah, it makes a really big difference. Um, in the workplace, especially when it comes to well-being, we've become obsessed with the links between productivity and well-being. Um, I think mostly because the very measurable item is that productivity can be a good ROI for any spend on well-being. Um, do you think those links really exist? Are people who are content more well, happier, etc.? Are they really more productive at work? I'm not sure because, you know, I can think of uh, people who are very happy but who are really poor performers well typically you see uh, it with you see so you get really engaged employees right who don't do much work and they're engaged because they're getting paid for not doing much work and yes. no one's keeping an eye on them so there's kind of yes. a that conflict exists in quite a lot of the research i've seen yes absolutely i would totally agree with you and that you know and i'm thinking of that just myself being in the team and and myself as an employee myself as a boss my, you know in different contexts um, and also as a consultant, I, I would say that um, it's not a clear relationship. But as I think, not to sort of repeat the previous point I made, I think if we're not well, certainly it would be true that our ability to perform well is more difficult to deliver and far more difficult to sustain. And I think your example of kind of customer service is a really good one, right? Because if people aren't happy, comfortable, content, looked after, yeah. their personality doesn't come through and they can't deliver that good service. If they really didn't give a shit then and they felt like they weren't being looked after at work, then in you know, in that airport example, they wouldn't go the extra mile. They wouldn't bother calming the customer down. They might even wind them up even more because they just don't care. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I saw this uh, at work literally, you know, this weekend. I mean, I was, you know, with a friend and being supportive and, you know, I was in the gallery and I could tell that all the staff in this gallery were overstretched, overworked and not given enough breaks. And, you know, the way they wouldn't make eye contact, the way they rushed the order, the way they made you feel non-human uh, just eroded the experience. Um, and, and so all those things I could totally as a human being see and have compassion for them and go, you know what, if I was you and I was in this environment and I had all of this going on at me constantly and I was short staffed, I'd probably be just like you. So I could really see it from the human dimension. But as you say, with, you know, particular jobs um, in different places, we really start to have to think about that a little bit more. And that's where... I think the parameter of well-being really matters. Like, are my staff really looked after well enough? Are they given the right resources to actually be at their best? And I think it only makes sense to ask people or, or hold people accountable to not doing a good job when you don't resource them correctly. 
you know, when they when they are resourced correctly. So that you know, if 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 you've got everything you need to succeed and you're still not succeeding, that's a, that's a problem. But when you when you are not given what you need, it's much harder to to be able to do well all the time. And I think that's a, a, a an often missed part of well being is how we give people the autonomy to make the decisions they need to do to get the job done. Um, yes. And I think that probably plays to what you said before about you reduce some of that conflict when an employee doesn't have to go to their boss and ask them for approval to do something. They have the power and the autonomy to do that themselves. So they kind of shape their own destiny in that sense. Um, and I, I wrote a LinkedIn article about engagement and customer service probably about four or five years ago. And it was based on my experience of going into um, Argos to buy a suitcase that I'd reserved. And when I got there, the suitcase wasn't there it hadn't been reserved for whatever reason and this young guy must have been only about 20 at the counter said well you know this is our fault we've made this mistake and um so do you want to find an alternative suitcase one that's you think is similar to the one you reserved and the only one i could find was double the price um but the guy said he had the authorization to make that decision did it there and then and i ended up leaving with a better suitcase than what i'd reserved Mm-hmm. And on the back of that article being put on LinkedIn, I got contacted by the people director um, within Argos to basically say, you know, this is this is what we encourage. We want to empower people that they make that judgment call to do what's best for the customer. Um, and I saw it again fairly recently when I was speaking to um, a financial services company that has some branches in the UK and each individual employee that works in those branches has got a discretionary fund that they can use to improve the lives of their customers. And the employees were using it for things like, you know, a customer came in and had had a bad day and, you know, a pet had died or something like that. She came in to do some banking. But um, and in order to try and make them feel better, this guy used his discretionary fund to go and buy her some flowers um, just to kind of cheer her up. And that kind of empowerment, I think that that clearly has an impact on people's well-being because they leave feeling like they were in control of their day. Um, and that they have the power to to make someone else's life better, I think is quite powerful. Oh, absolutely, and and you know those those are beautiful examples, and uh, you know I I have seen the opposite examples a couple of times where you know people due to their rank, whether this is on you know a, a shop floor of a supermarket or you know in a travel agency, where you see what to me seem like very fake lines of status and distinctions that are very ego-based and and are not effective towards the customer in any shape or form and where you end up having a situation where someone's looking at you and going i'm not an idiot i could totally do this but my company won't allow me so i need to wait for authorization from my supervisor and you know waste time makes them feel bad and actually it makes them sometimes even when i watch it makes them feel ashamed and, and so it's such a problematic interaction and it could all be done away with because it's, uh, it's not necessary. So there are, I think, many forward-thinking places that, you know, that are beginning to see that, um, you know, y- y- you, you can approach this differently and, and that, you know, hierarchy should mean something real um, and not be so arbitrary about, you know, I get to push this button and you don't. Um, uh, with every single little uh, case, but um, 
but it's not the norm yet. And I see a lot of people, and something very interesting has happened really recently, just in sort of casual conversations in my neighborhood when I pay attention where people of different types of professions, uh, whether they're, you know, entrepreneurs uh, or people who are working in, you know, a, a, a men's grooming salon or someone working for a company in sales, they're saying, I am bored. And this is something very interesting. It sounds like a new trend of people are just bored of what they do. And it's it's gotten me um, thinking a little bit about, you know, what does this mean? Do we, do we um, somehow have unusually... Um, high expectation of the workplace that is somehow bound to fail mm. because you know work to a certain level will be um, predictable and there has to be a kind of you know every customer I see will be a new person so therefore there is always a degree of difference but I have to learn and know what I should pay attention to and where to look for beauty and wonder and if I don't know where to look, sooner or later, I will just um, sort of distill everything to being essentially the same and essentially boring. Um, and what does that mean for staff engagement, really, in terms of sustaining staff engagement? And does this really just kind of really ponder to this kind of um, short terminism and short attention spans and more of almost agreeing with okay you know people only read headlines very short so it has to have three words <laughs> and actually no maybe we're, we are following rules that just because they are becoming what we think they are the wrong assumptions interesting very interesting and I think that's you know people are striving for more meaning at work um you know in the opening paragraph of um, of my mm. book I talk about how you know, work has become so important to how we identify ourselves. You know, the example I give is if you go on a game show, um, you will get asked kind of what's your name, where do you live and what do you do? It's kind of one of the defining things that we see in each other. Um, yes. And I think we got lost with the idea that we everyone could do a job that they loved and you should follow your passion and you should follow your dreams. And the reality is obviously quite different. You know, some people would love to be a singer but just can't sing. And we've seen that on talent shows all around the world. And so that it's kind of really bad advice to almost follow what you love. And I think, you know, people like me, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an animator when I was growing up and then that just didn't really work out. And, you know, I now do a job and I have done for more than eight years, a job that I sincerely love. And it was never something I could have predict predicted as a child. It wasn't a job that I knew existed. Um, yeah, I've really kind of found my purpose. And I think, it's really important for us to encourage employees no matter what their jobs are whether they're you know whether refuse disposal whether they work on checkouts whether they work in call centers um to find pits of that job that they love and to actually embrace those bits of the job that give them real meaning and make coming to work worthwhile absolutely and you know and i think that that's really you know when i sort of what if you know when i'm teaching managers or doing something, I, I come back to exactly what you've just named. I think, you know, people don't, even when they are engaging in a job um, rationally, so by, by sort of going, you know, 
a guy on the corner in a coffee shop, you know, he, I've met him, he runs, he does three jobs because he has four children and he has to work a lot to support his family. And, you know, I'm sure he doesn't love all his jobs. I can tell he doesn't. <laughs> and at the same time, you see, he finds the heart in it because the larger meaning of his work is what that delivers to his family and his children. So the heart component is in that, but that happens and gets channeled through the jobs he does in terms of being pleasant, engaging people, you know, offering them nice service and doing a job well so he can keep doing it. Where there are times when you go to a place and uh, you just say, please, you know, I mean, you know, if this person does not understand what they're here to do, then they must change their job because, uh, you know, it shows through the way a person does their work, which is really behavior, that, that something's not aligned, that something's in conflict. And, you know, that could be that they, the person doesn't like their boss, doesn't like the place they work, uh, is thwarted, you know, in terms of their career, whatever it might be. But ultimately, th the way we see this is that this person doesn't give off a good vibe. You know, and the, the conflict always leaks out somewhere. And the the effect that has on the bottom line of an organization is going to be pretty obvious, right? So, oh, it's huge. You know, it's absolutely huge. Customer service is arguably, I would say, as a consumer, more important now than it's ever been because it just doesn't exist as much. So when you do get it, you start to really notice bad service. I I think you do, and and you will more so because. I remember, you know, being in M&S and uh, meeting um, a store manager and uh, him asking me, you know, can I help you? And I sort of thought, no, I'm just browsing, you know, I I'm, I'm don't really need particular help. Uh, but then, you know, being there another time and needing help and asking two people on the floor, uh, you know, it was actually to do with my, my trip to Brazil. I thought, I need a swimsuit in December. <laughs> <laughs> and asking two people on the floor, you know, do you guys carry those at this moment in time or what's happening? And then both going, I don't know. And not only not knowing, but saying, listen, I don't know, but I'm going to go find out. But it's sort of, I don't know. And I don't care. Mm. And you see, it's so interesting because you sort of go, what's wrong here? When, you know, the year before around the, probably the same time I walked into, you know, uh, the Westfield shop and, uh, and what was really interesting is they decked it all out. It was all beautiful. And I, I walked to some of the ladies in one of the um, fitting rooms and I said, you must be so happy to work here. The place looks spectacular. And I said that to them and they both giggled and said, you're kind of right. <laughs> you know, it just looked nice. I mean, okay, I was there when the shop just opened. So, you know, everything looked really neat and beautiful and stuff, but it was very pretty. And, uh, and, and they just, you know, they, they sort of thought, but then I needed a different size of something and they sort of go, oh, we don't have this, but you have to go over there. They didn't know what to send me. And so, you know, th there is something about, it, it's not an easy thing to get this right. And I think, you know, I, I don't know how large companies can get it right all the time because it really comes down to, um, every every local manager really becoming so so important in this equation because it's the local person who you get to see every day 
that can ultimately keep an eye on what helps you do a good job and what doesn't and how to change things around because we're humans you know we're not machines and this is only going to get worse right so in a, in a future where automation takes over all the kind of unskilled manual jobs um you know we won't have you know in a few years we probably won't have as many drivers on the road you know you won't have truck drivers taxi drivers that will all become automated picking things out of a warehouse and putting them and putting them in orders and stuff like that we're already seeing amazon robots picking that stuff out already so as these jobs start to get automated lots of the research and expert opinion i've looked at shows that the kind of face-to-face human touchy-feely jobs that we don't currently value now will start to become better paid and will start to become the kind of jobs where you really want to focus on where can people have a real impact and some of the examples i've seen are things like care home assistants Mm -hmm. so all of a sudden you know at the moment pretty unskilled they get a a little bit of training um pretty poorly paid they will start to become more important because all of a sudden we will start focusing on actually you know if we are living longer i want my parents to be looked after and that's something i want to spend money on um and so that kind of purpose and empathy and those real human skills are going to become significantly more important than they are now i i i completely agree with you i mean you know i i have more one-to-one clients now who might be superbly successful but who fundamentally will say i feel lonely uh, isolation, you know, for many governments is part of a, a major policies. They have ministers to look at how isolation is a, a punishment. Our ability, you know, so we can be served well and quickly by an automatic system that fetches our product, uh, a drone that delivers it to our house, but more and more we will miss human true human connection the sort of connection that you get and pay for in high luxury goods because you're paying for someone to fuss around you you're paying for someone to really attune to you and know your needs um and we're somehow thinking that um that 99 of the world that is not in the you know privileged position to buy that luxury doesn't need it anymore and I find that really problematic. Mm, this is fascinating. I love talking to you about this kind of stuff. I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting view into our future in the workplace. Um, and we could talk about it for a lot longer, but um, unfortunately we can't. So I'm going to move to my last question to you. And that is, what do you do personally that you think has the most positive impact on your own well-being? Uh, you know, uh, I, I, uh, I'm a fan of practicing what I preach. I think it, uh, keeps me in my integrity. So what I do changes, but I would say that I always, always, and I have died, you know, I follow a paper diary for years. So I have ways of documenting this to anyone who's interested. <laughs> um, I, engage in practices that I know are nurturing my well-being for sure. So they might be, you know, meditation. Uh, And by this, I don't mean some fancy process. But for example, I have a mobile on a ceiling and I will spend five minutes contemplating how my mobile moves and how the light changes its color. 
uh, and it helps me or I will look at a tree outside in the park and just look what can a tree teach me um, so they might be really simple practices uh, I, I do like yoga I love music I think music and what music does to the mind is and to the body is fantastic. So when I watch people, I play, uh, you know, and curate uh, music for retreats. And uh, when people, I see what happens when we play certain music, it's fantastic to watch because uh, it has a direct connection to the body in a way that uh, words maybe can't have. So um, I do that. Um, and I and I get creative, you know, I get creative and playful. So I do wacky things just because I feel I give myself permission to do so. So I'll wear, you know, funky pink glasses down the street or a silly hat or do something that um, just says, you know what, lighten up a bit. It's You don't have to somehow be in a certain way. And um, I think by having a permission to give myself permission is quite a good thing to do. So, you know, and I watch quite a bit of comedy <laughs> to lighten the load. <laughs> I'm a big what's, addict to What's you your favourite comedy? What do you watch? Well, at the moment, I've been, um, I've been having a, a look at Bill Bailey's, um, yeah. you know, shows on, on YouTube, and it makes me giggle quite, quite a lot. I, I uh, really like, um, there's this piece of a, a gig he's done um, where um, it's the... Oh gosh, what's that English show that he's done a sort of reggae version of? Oh, it's absolutely hilarious. So I would say look look up uh, look up Bill Bailey on YouTube, and I'll send you the link. <laughs> so I think, what, what I think is fascinating is kind of one of the strong themes as we come to the end of this season of uh, the podcast. One of the strong themes when I've asked people about this stuff is all very natural, free stuff. So it's laughing, getting outside doing a bit of exercise, enjoying nature, enjoying moments of silence. You know, we have a well-being industry that has a, appeared from nowhere to try and convince us that, you know, a billion a billion dollar industry to convince us that if you buy these things or these services, you will feel better. Yet everyone at this well on this podcast is telling me all these things that anyone listening now can go outside and do for free. You know, looking on YouTube for Bill Bailey videos is free going for a walk and standing in the woods is free. Um, yet well-being has become a very expensive industry. It's fascinating. And, and I think there's a place for it. You know, I, I buy my beautiful, you know, I, I will spend a fortune on a beautiful, good candle, uh, you know, or a nice incense stick. There's a place for everything, but your message is really important and it's a message I really share, you know, as an educator, as a practitioner, is that, it, you, the excuse that something costs should not be an excuse because there are free, accessible, creative options for all of it. What gets squeezed out in this race to the bottom, longer hours, more pressure, um, trying to do it all, is the time for it. So making time for well-being is key. Excellent. I think that's a really good note to end on. Um, if anyone would like to find out more about uh, Magdalena and Make Time Count, you can visit www.maketimecount.com and you can find Magdalena on uh, Twitter at Make Time Count UK. Uh, it's been a genuine pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us, Magdalena. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an honour.
join the workplace wellbeing discussion online by tweeting your thoughts and questions to at world of good book thank you to my guest today and thank you for listening